Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. This week, the spotlight shines on Frankie Tan and Kelvin Lee of AuraStream. AuraStream was started to introduce an adaptive audio streaming technology that uses lossless, high-resolution audio digital files of the original musical performance to seamlessly deliver the highest quality audio that the consumer's network can support at any time, at any audio quality, over any device. AuraStream's adaptive audio delivery platform is used by services such as the Neil Young Archives, Prime Phonic, HD Tracks, and Presto Music to offer lossless, high-resolution audio music streaming and downloads to consumers. Frankie and Kelvin take us under the hood to talk about the technology behind high-resolution streaming, why audio and video streaming evolved along divergent paths, and what AuraStream and their consumer offering, Brio, are doing to usher in a new era of universal, modern, multimedia access. Enjoy our talk. Are you uh, okay? I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, which part? Uh, which part of the U.S. are you in? I am just south of Seattle. Seattle. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's great. That's that's very nice. <laughs> Where are you? We are based in Singapore. Miss Calvin and I. Oh, what time is it for you? Seven a.m. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thank you and I apologize. It's a pleasure to meet you both. Maybe we could start with a brief introduction. What do each of you do for AuraStream? Okay, yeah, maybe I can start off first. So my name is Frankie. I'm the CEO of AuraStream. Kevin and I co-founded this company about 12 years ago. And basically, Kevin and I worked in a research institute where this technology was first introduced. At that point in time, we it sort of uh, understood that it would be something that would be useful for streaming, for audio streaming. And so when the time came, about 12 years ago, we basically started, started the company to commercialize the technology for audio streaming. So that's how we got started. Kelvin? Yeah, my name is Kelvin. I am the CTO of AuraStream. I was basically interested in digital media since I was a student in the university. So I've been looking at various digital media like audio, video, and also image processing since a student. And so they, this led me to various various startups, I would say. Uh, I, I started working in the research institute where, where I met Frankie. And subsequently, I was working on image processing in a aerospace defense area. And then I came back to digital audio much later on when I joined AuraStream. But 
prior to Aura Stream, I was actually involved in, in a 3D VR XR company. So I was basically more on the product development side. So from what I learned in the 3D company, I basically brought back some of the new knowledge and I got involved in the Aura Stream operations from 12 years ago until now. I would love to talk a little bit about the work at the Research Institute. That, that's sort of fascinating to me as an origin story. What was the nature of the work and what was it that led you to believe there was an application in audio streaming? My previous experience in research prior to the research that's linked to the Aura Stream technology was basically in a university lab. So I was helping the professors to develop some ideas, publish papers, and so on. So with that background, I joined the Research Institute to mainly focus on commercializing the technology that has already been developed. So basically, it's more of an applied uh, research development. It is to know what sort of technology is at hand that can be turned into a product. So it has several stages to it. Uh, one of it is to turn the technology that is published on papers and on shared in conferences and, and basically AES and W3C and MPEG meetings, right? So there is some kind of a software that is available for reference. We would need to then turn that software that has been returned into something that can go into, back then we have, we have the, the uh, Symbian phones. Uh, it wasn't really the smartphone era yet. So there are, there are a lot of uh, development that needs to be done to bring the technology into a SOC silicon, I would say into a SOC silicon, basically. So some of this would then be also developed for implementation on FPGAs and also on DSPs. So this is a little bit more of a technical area. I can go a little bit deeper into it if you want to look into some of these details. But the research over there was very different from what I did in the university, right? So there is actually also more resources, I would say. So every team member would be basically looking at a particular platform. So uh, there will be developers who are looking into the Windows and Mac environment. Okay, And then there will be two or three guys that look into the Symbian environment where they will have to then develop for each of this. Back then, I think this was the various models. Like we have a Symbian, I think 60 and a 90 or 6 and 9. Okay, so there are different series in the Symbian base, I think, you know, that we have to develop the SOCs for. I think that's basically what was going on back then. So you're basically looking through a portfolio of technologies and trying to develop the commercial applications for them? Is that sort no, of... No, not really. I, I think maybe I'll jump in here. But basically, I mean, the, the Research Institute was one that is focused on Infocom technologies. And of course, they were kind of uh, focused in the area of uh, audio. With a kind of an audio laboratory. And the background to this was that, you know, uh, over the last, I mean, the MP3 audio lossy codecs were, were invented like three decades ago. And since uh, 20,000, we have, you know, simple advances in computing, in broadband networking, you know, in storage technologies. And, and so there, there was this motivation to look towards building uh, codecs that would be able to support lossless applications, lossless audio applications, because, you know, the advances and the conditions on technologies that we, that 
we have or we was developing over those years. And ultimately, they were looking at then the idea of basically a delivery paradigm whereby, you know, you, you can have a delivery network that all sorts of devices can access content in high quality, regardless of what the format is. And then to be able to consume them ubiquitously you know, across heterogeneous networks. And, you know, it can be consumed by users, consumers with different preferences. The idea then was something called a universal multimedia access delivery paradigm. Imagine what you have with actually video today. Today, when you're consuming video, the source video is a HD file. And you may consume video on a mobile phone, on a computer, you may con- on different networks. But what you get to consume is coming from a high-quality HD video source file. So it's a little bit that of this concept, you know, where, whereby across any network, any device, you're able to consume content based on either the, the usage conditions, uh, environmental conditions, or your individual preferences. So this was kind of the genesis for what these audio codecs, this new generation of audio codecs would do. It would enable lossless applications or lossless audio applications to be carried to consumers, regardless of what devices consumers were consuming them on. And as you know, you know, this has not been the same for music. For over the last 35, 30 years, music has been delivered in lossy quality. They may start with a CD quality file, but they deliver to you in lossy quality, regardless of whether you have the bandwidth or whether you have the sound equipment or the stereo systems to, to enjoy high-resolution music. You get only 320 kpps MP3 quality or AEC quality at 256. So that has not been the situation for audio applications for a long, long time. So this particular codec development or invention, the codec was co-invented by Van Haufer and the Research Institute. And, and it was at that time envisaged that this codec worked well for streaming applications. And so this was still in the year 2004, 2005, 2006. So we went out, we took this idea out to the industry when C Group in New York, um, the CTO at that time was a guy called Howie Singer. So Harvey was, uh, you know, was kind of like the audio futurist. So he envisaged a system whereby, you know, this technology could be used on mobile, on very well on mobile phones, as you know, mobile devices have very variable quality of service networks. This codec would enable the quality of audio to be scale at losses quality if you have a good network but if you get into say the train station the underground and your network gets degraded it will scale to a lossy quality as if you are listening to i know a 96 kilobits audio stream so he encouraged us you know he encouraged us to go back to the research and basically ask them to research on a streaming application and by way of an adaptive server so that you can adapt this particular audio codec for those varying network conditions for mobile streaming. And this was just in 2005, 2006. So Spotify, in fact, at the time, wasn't even launched. You know? So this was even way before you know, the first... I mean, of course, our Rhapsody was already a streaming service, so there was some reference there to look at. But how we kind of foresee that, that this is going to be a big way of considering music going forward and, and this technology will play a, a role you know, in kind of encouraging the development of streaming, streaming audio, streaming music not just in terms of accessibility, but in terms of better audio quality.
So we got back to the research institute and said that, you know, and told the research researchers and saying, oh, this is our feedback. And yeah, it's a good, it's something that, that is novel and new and, and innovative. And this is one possible application. So they took a couple of years to basically build out a streaming system of being able to to sort of sense what's, in, what's the bandwidth, prevailing bandwidth on a client device, on a player device on a real-time basis, and then to then get that information to adapt the audio quality when it's streamed to them uh, in real-time basis. So when that prototype was ready, they, they basically looked, looked me up and said, hey, we've got this ready, can you see the demo? And I watched it and I thought, this, it's kind of like they've, they've taken advice from the industry and, and they developed this. And so I contacted Kelvin and then we decided to sort of put together some friends and family with some seed funding and went and got a government grant. And actually, we at that time sought uh, help from Howie as well. And Howie put us with our deal. Our deal was a San Francisco-based ring service. And, and we, we went and visited them and we actually developed a prototype for them. And they, the CTO at that time tested it. And he said, hey guys, this works very well. I was in my home, it was Wi-Fi. I, I left my home, it switched back to 3G, you know. At that time it was 2.5G, I think at, at that time, 212, I think, 2012. And he said, it works, you know. So I said, that, well, you know, so how can we implement this into the RDO service? So he said, well, that's a different thing. This is just, a, you know, a server and a, and a player that you have. For delivering music services like RDO, we need the system to be part of a delivery platform where we host our servers on, at that time, was our HCAST networks and we need to encode our content. You know, we have like, that time was like probably 20 million content that needs to be re-encoded in this format. And so it's not going to be so simple. Then he put me in touch with the people at HCAST. I, I went and visit them. And so I came back and told Kelvin that, that we can't, commercialize this just as a server and client demo or a working demo. We need to basically build a delivery solution that incorporates this technology and then deliver this as an end-to-end solution for potential music services. And so that's what we had to do. You know, we spent the next three years reconfiguring the team and Kelvin basically put the stuff together. He was actually, uh, Kelvin was an, an embedded, 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 uh, systems, embedded engineer. systems engineer. And so we were a small team and small company. We, we didn't raise any venture funding. You know, the, the music industry was still in the throes of a depression and very slowly developed, put this into a platform and end, end solution sitting on HCAST networks, running on uh, lease servers from HCAST. And we took this platform, in this case, still a working end-to-end solution, and we developed two music services. One was for EDM, electronic dance music, so we call it Dance HD. And another was Classical HD, where we went and licensed content from Nexos. Jeff Van Drill from Nexos uh, in, in the US, based out of Tennessee. And he, he very kindly, some of Nexos material for us and we demonstrated these two applications on mobile apps, Android and iOS. And the dance of dance application EDM was very popular. It was it was a free demo app. It was downloaded one hundred thousand downloads. You know, in in like two months. You know, in in developing countries like the Philippines, Algeria, Mexico. You know, those places. We we didn't do any advertising, so I guess those apps went on those app stores because you know they were kind of like the only free music apps around. And then we took the Dance HD to Nexos and we showed them what Dance HD was. And 
And Nexos, Nexos, Nexos is a very innovative company. They are early adopters of technology. So they decided to basically license our technology and build a service called Classics Online, which is the first high-resolution classical music training service back in 2015. And they ran it for two years out of 2016. Sony's content there, their own Nexos content there. But unfortunately, they, they didn't basically... Uh, generate enough subscribers, you know, in the first two years to basically pay the advances for Sony and all that. So they said that it was not kind of profitable to continue, you know. So they decided to stop the service and revert back to just licensing, you know, their classic content to TSPs around the world, which they continue to do today. And so that door closed, but it was the tail end of the Pono experience for Neil. And Neil was looking for, you know, something to, uh, with Pono he had had Tremendous feedback from his directors that everybody's going to streaming, you know, you should look at streaming. And so one of his staff being a subscriber or was a subscriber to the Classics Online service. He showed Neil or he showed his bosses and this went to Neil and, and, and Neil saw, hey, this classical music is streaming at 24.96 resolution. You know? So he contacted Nexos and Nexos put up us, you know, in contact with him. And then we met Elliot Roberts, Neil's manager in, in San Francisco. And then uh, Elliot said, hey, guys, we're going to use this technology. So that's how our relationship with Neil started. And, and then when Neil used the system, we, we were able to sort of go to Primephonic. So Primephonic, they started a system using flag files. And in, in the Netherlands, a lot of streaming is in the morning, you know, work transit you know, across the train networks across Netherlands, you know, from Utrecht to Rotterdam or Utrecht to... To, to Amsterdam or something. You know, and that, that service that were running on flag files were basically buffering you know, on the trains. So after like three months or four months, they had really poor reviews, like two star, one star on, on hi-fi audio or something. So they came to us and said, hey, you know, we want to use the adaptive streaming technology. And so they shut down that service and six, four, I think probably about six, four, four months, I think, we basically re- re-enabled uh, the delivery part of the service because their service apps were already developed. They had players, you know, all of the front-end stuff were already done. So we basically worked on the back-end side, the ingestion, and then the APIs to connect to call for their front-end call to service. So after four months later, they relaunched it. And, and it, it worked very well. You know, they got uh, reviews back to four, four and a half stars on Hi-Fi Audio and stuff like that. And so they were voted the most of one of the best, maybe the best classical music service at that time. And, and so from Primephonic, we managed to go to Presto Music. It's another classical music service that's been running for almost 20 years in the UK. So we managed to convince Presto Music as well. And after that, HD Tracks as well. And these were kind of our initial niche, what would I say, niche services that, that adopted this technology. Yeah, and then I guess that's how <laughs> how we transferred from research into a real commercial application and real production scenario, all in the space of, well, the original research started in 2003, I think. And then they, we went out at about 2005, 2006 for feedback from the industry. And the, the prototypes were available in 2010. We started coming in 2011. 2015, we had the first Nexus service. And of course, that first service taught us a lot of things. And that service actually build a foundation for us to build a, a fully commercialized series of prime funding and for near accounts. Between 06 and 2010, what were the challenges you had to overcome? 
what were the technical obstacles, or let me say it differently, technology aside, overall, what, what did you spend that four years doing from the initial industry feedback to having prototypes in the market? The research institute, of course, have many parallel research initiatives right at the same time. And, and for this particular adaptive streaming portion, you know, to work on application of this audio code, Codec, they basically had a very uh, a small uh, team of researchers that was working on how do we build and cope this particular audio file in a way whereby when we scale and stream, we maintain what we call channel separation. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you have a, a, a file that you're going to truncate at a particular frame and send them out. This is a two-channel stereo file. You don't want to do it in a way whereby you transform them into a two-channel mono file. You know? So there was time spent on how they encode and truncate, decode and truncate this particular code in such a way whereby even at a lossy truncation stream of frame, you still maintain the stereo separation that was in the original recording. So this was something novel and they, they then patented this particular encoding and truncation method as well. So, of course, the, the uh, IP papers for, for yeah, the yeah. lawyers and stuff like that. A lot of problems. So, the whole process does take a bit of time, yeah. And that's been the research uh, development application that was being done in the research institute before they came back to us with the prototype. And when it came up to us, the patent was already applied in the US, in, in the EPO as well. You know, and we, when we took over, it, it was applied but wasn't awarded as wasn't approved and awarded as, as yet. So while we are developing the, the platform itself, we were also kind of responding to the, the PTO inquiries and stuff like that. And so, so I think by around 2013-2014, the patents at EPO and USPTO were approved. So the, uh, the codec is a ISO standard, so it's above under RAN rules and you know, random and non-discriminatory licensing rules. So anyone can access a codec. But when you want to use that codec, in a streaming application, you need to encode it in a certain fashion, you need to truncate in a certain fashion, then that method on doing so is covered by the patent. Can you give our listeners a little bit of context as to why the initial launch of audio streaming, or even before that digital audio, why was it different from the way video is treated? You mentioned early on that video is a HD source, adapts to its playback environment or its its playback variables. Why wasn't audio implemented that way back in the day? I'm not particularly sure, but, but I, I, I can just tell you what I know and Kevin can jump in on what he knows, right? So I, I know that lossy codecs are very efficient. So you can get a compression ratio of 30 times with lossy codecs because you are removing data from the original file. You know, you're masking, you, you can remove them. So besides just compression, you, you remove data. So you have very, very efficient compression as compared to a lossy codec, which only compresses, right, without removing any audio data. And with very modern, so-called modern AC and MP3 encoding implementations, they begin to make it very efficient. So, so really at 320 or 256, you do get uh, perceptual lossless quality. Most users can basically get away with it, right? So, so I think that has, of course, one strong uh, reason, right? That that services, distribution services, have no motivation to to change the code, right? Because no one's asking for it to change. 
And the other thing, of course, the economic reason is that that when you stream a losses codec, because the compression ratios are much lower, the data transfers are much higher too. And so it, it, imagine a, a losses codec is a 24192 file streams six and a half times, is six and a half times larger than a CD file. It's 15 times larger than a 320 MP3 file. So, so imagine if I were Apple Music, right? I'm streaming, say, one three megabyte for one track. Say, I don't know, I don't say that's bad. 10 megabyte for one track, let's say. If I switch this to CD quality, I'm going to stream six times six megabytes for one track. Imagine, if I, if I promote 24192, which they, they have on the site now, it's 15 times, <laughs> 15 times of. So obviously, you know, if you time, time multiply this by 30 million users, right? I mean, do you want to spend that cost when no one is clamoring for it? And also, at least no one seems to be clamoring for it, at least not in large, large voices. You know? So you, you wouldn't be motivated to increase or change your code and, and send more lossless data to the consumer players, right? So I think that's at least what I know. And, and I, I guess on, on why it's easier to do this on video, perhaps Kevin may be able to address that. <laughs> yeah, I think with that business consideration that you just mentioned, as a backdrop, there wasn't basically then kind of like a need to improve on audio as much as they, they see that there is a lot of room for improvement on video. So over the next few years after they have basically started launching 720p on YouTube. They basically do a lot of, I would say, enhancements to bring this up in quality. I think the business consideration back then was weighted against improving audio versus improving video. So audio kind of take a backseat because it has basically separated uh, what they think you know is good enough at perceptual lossless quality. Now that is only true if you are going to be consuming music on earbuds, right? Because they use, I would say, certain algorithms, you know, cycle acoustics is the name of, of that, to allow certain components in your music to be picked up as a mass signal. So that this could be conveniently dropped without having any perceived differences when you are listening through your earbuds or if you're really in an enclosed area through earbuds or headphones. Yeah, Kevin, that's on audio. What about video? Yeah, so basically this is saturated. They are just looking at that in audio itself. Yeah, but there there aren't any like consideration on playing back on large systems like in a loudspeaker, in a home theater system. And those problems were actually more apparent when they bring audio and video together in a home system. That's where I come in into the video part. Right. So basically, in the home theater system, they then magnify this together. They realize that video looks really tiny. <laughs> I think back then, you can go up to only a 42-inch. 40, if you can get a 42-inch screen, it would be considered luxury. 720p on 42-inch screen, it doesn't really look that fantastic. If you put it up on a projection screen, you know it looks even grainier. So what they saw on all uh, on video, actually the same thing was observed for audio because these things, these artifacts then get magnified on the loudspeakers, right? But they still think that this is good enough because the video part was more, the difference was more apparent, okay? Because of the visual component? That's right, yeah. yeah. It, it is basically easier for you to pick up something visually than to your ears, but 
your sensitivity is actually higher when it comes to picking up or differentiating a difference in sound. Okay, your ears are actually uh, going to be more sensitive than your eyes are, right? I think uh, there is a research on it. I, I can't remember the figures, but it was a very interesting article where it talks a factor of like probably like two magnitudes apart. So I think that's why some audio files, they really swear by being able to listen to some sound stage differences in terms of setting up that. But I, I digress. I'm going to come back to the uh, video part to say why there was room for improvement. Okay, I think against that, that consideration, there was continually technology advancements. I think 2007, that was the year I, I left the uh, research company. Okay, but before that, I basically was in the Apple WWDC conference. Okay, so that's where I think smartphones be, become mainstream, right? So the use of smartphones basically accelerated the whole technology boom for mobile. So processing power just kind of improved by leaps and bounds. Every year, you're looking at 30%, 50% increases in CPU. I think that basically got everybody excited. And then they saw that there was this gap that was left by video at 720p that needs to be addressed. So, and Apple was basically very vocal about their touch screens, you know, the high resolution display that's, that, that were coming up back then. So basically a lot of resources were devoted to just putting the video side of things. And that happens up to today. You get to 720p, you have 1080, you have 4K, and now with the metaverse, you know, you're going to go into the 8K domain. You're talking about 100 megabits per second, right? And if you put this figure, 100 megabits per second next to the audio, AAC is going to be at maximum 320. And that is 0 0.3 megabits per second, 100 versus uh, 0 0.3. So you're looking at much wider, you know, and it is still widening disparity between what you have as a lossy audio versus what you have as high resolution video. In fact, the high resolution video is going to be much larger than the master files that were used for deriving the MP3 or AAC audio. Yeah, that's a very helpful illustration, actually, to, to hear it articulated that way. So Frankie talked a little bit about the initial commercial applications being some of these sort of niche services or genre services. When you go into a conversation with a Neil Young or a Naxos or whomever, do you still have to solve the end-to-end -end problem starting with the ingestion and the encoding? Is that a service layer that you have to provide now? Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, because these files use a different encoding method. So you do have to re-encode all your source files. But of course, uh, you would then now re-encode all your source files in the best audio resolution that you have. So for Neil, he has most of them in 24192. So they are re-encoded in 24192. And for those that he doesn't have during the different period, he has them in 246, I mean 1644. And so 1644 would be the source files. So we basically use the quality, uh, the highest resolution quality of the source files. And then based on adaptive streaming, we deliver at whatever quality the consumer can support. Consumer's device network, all the consumer prefers 
uh, to listen up after lower quality can support. And because we work with a single file, we don't switch between sample rates. We work with a single uniform uh, sample rate file. You can interchange between losses and losses easily, seamlessly, to such an extent that, for instance, we understand that when you stream losses files, if you're streaming a flat file, this is fixed. You know, you're, you're going to have to stream this file regardless of how you use it. But with, with scalable losses like what we do today, you don't have to. So, for instance, if your usage conditions don't require to listen to the full losses, you scale it down to lossy. So, I'll give you an example. Like, for instance, let's say you have a radio service like Pandora. Most of people turn Pandora volume down because they play it all over eight hours a day in the background. So if you were to run a flag service on Pandora, can imagine the data transfer rates would just increase multiple six times in overnight. In this application with scalable losses, for instance, if you use Pandora with scalable losses, when someone turns down minus 10 dB, minus 20 dB, the server reduced the losses speed rate to, say, 320. If it reduces to minus another 5 dB, it reduces it down to 192 or eventually even 128. Now, when you lower the volume, your dynamic range is reduced. You can't hear it and you can't perceive it. So it's kind of wasteful to stream a full flag file if you run a flag service. Right? So you rather have a scalable losses file so that you can scale the bitrate data transfer down as well. And that optimizes both on the service side as well as the consumer side. You go, the consumer doesn't have to consume the bandwidth that he doesn't need to. The other bandwidth can be played on some video in, in some someone else's machine or something. So on a go-forward basis, to because uh, I'm very interested in sort of what's next for your, yeah, your, yeah. your system. So, yeah. so we, I mean, for niche services or niche services or greenfield services, it's okay to implement, you know, directly SLS, a scalable loss solution, because we're dealing with a smaller number of recordings. We're dealing with a smaller number of user base, small number of devices. You can do a direct conversion or you can transition a direct conversion like what Prime Phonic did without disrupting, you know, your existing service. But for incumbent services, it's going to be very tough. So what we've done is that we've looked at incumbent services. We had opportunity to basically had a call, a couple of calls with uh, SiriusXM. And we understand that, you know, they are using HLS for audio today. So HLS is the same technology driven by Apple for adaptive streaming in video. But you can use HLS for audio as well. And you know, instead of video profiles, you're using audio profiles. And in the case of SiriusXM, they, they use different AAC profiles for different network conditions. And what we've done over the last two months is to basically supply SLS within the HLS protocol framework. So in this application, so long as you have devices that, that can support SLS you and they, their network is fast enough, the HLS will deliver the SLS adaptive stream above, say, 300, say about above 400 kilobits per second. Because AAC gets you up to 320 or 256 as the mode at highest. So it just calls the appropriate file. Correct. To sort of yeah. simplify it. It just knows exactly. that you hit this yeah. threshold call from here. So let's say on, on web browsers, for instance, where the SLS players are called by the browsers because of JavaScript. So you have them instantaneously. So anyone who plays this service on browsers will be able to get a lost stream. On other devices, like in the cars or on a, you know, on a radio where you cannot get the SLS decoder in there because it's embedded flash in the network or something, then obviously they can continue with AC. The existence. It was over time when you release your new updates and these new updates 
get flashing with SLS codec. Then, of course, they now begin to be able to play SLS. Now, over time, if let's say you take three years, four years, where you are able to populate all of your legacy devices out there with the new SLS decoders update, you can even switch off AAC because the SLS can scale all the way down to 80 kilobits per second and you still get uh, quality which is good enough you know, for those. So that becomes, the, that becomes your path to business scalability because this implementation with Sirius or this test with Sirius gives you a proof of concept of how to implement within a legacy system that can't be shut down. I must say that we don't have such a thing run with serious escape. We're trying to show them that this is what yeah. we can do. Yeah. I mean, we, we understood the problem. We had a meeting with them. We understood the problem that this is kind of our, we, we kind of devised this solution and, and it's working. And our next step is to basically get their attention to, to listen to it and see if they buy into it. It was a, it's a prototype that you built to try to get their exactly. attention. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. It's a prototype that we try to get attention that we, we understand. This is the problem that, that incumbent and major services face today. How can, yes, the technology is great. You know, we can optimize data streaming transfers on the consumer side, gives consumer choices, preferences. And if someone wants to consume in high quality, they can. So on the consumer as well and good on the service side, yes, it optimizes data transfer delivery. Don't waste data transfers or, or streaming a full losses file when, you know, the usage condition doesn't warrant it. Yeah. You know, and, and, but still, you know, we need it to be adapted in such a way whereby, you know, someone can, incumbent service can adopt it. So, so we've implemented this within a HLS framework so that during this period of transition, you know, you can update all your players. Some may be updated immediately, some may not, and you have the time to do so. And once you are able to update the whole universe of all your devices with SLS, you can take away the AC code as well because the licensing cost for AC is still still quite high. Yeah. And so what's your business model? Are you, do you also have a licensing cost or are you a service model? How do you work? Yeah, it depends on our customers. I mean, we are such a small company, you know. So when we have Prime Fondy as our customer, they have a full technical team. So we basically implement our technology and we collect a server license and decoder license from them on a quarterly or a server license annually and decoder license are quarterly. We count on how many users, new users, and then based on a per user basis. So this is the same for Presto. For HD tracks, it's a bit different. HD tracks, they don't have a full technical team. So we, after we deliver the system, we, we provide the technical support as well. So we run their backend for them. We run dev development ops for them for uh, basically for a service fee after the system is delivered to them. And also for HD tracks, it's quite interesting because they, they had always been a download service and they still are a download service and, and of course they know that streaming uh, is a lot more competitive but they wanted a system whereby if they had decided to go into streaming they could switch it on immediately so with our system you know we are able to store the one SLS file in the highest resolution and when someone buys a download they say I want it in flag we basically take the SLS file convert into wave and go into flag and deliver into flag all this is done on the fly so you encode on the fly. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And so someone who, who says that, okay, I want just in wave. So we convert them in wave and we deliver them in wave or AIFF or, or, or ELEC as well. So, so we see this technology basically kind of fulfills the idea of a universal multimedia paradigm. Regardless of what is your original, what is the original source format, regardless of what your network, you're, you're pulling this from, what device you're using with and what preference you have, this delivery system achieves that. So, so we 
been able to demonstrate this on HD tracks on our own uh, locker as well. So we have a Brio, which is a music locker. I mean, why we use website Brio is because, you know, we found that the recording industry is clearly, you know, major labels have, have all of the marketing power and it's very hard, you know, to really start innovative systems or solutions, you know, because the bar to license content is just too high. And we said that in order to get our technology in the hands of consumers or consumers you know, who kind of value audio quality, we decided to build a, a locker service. And of course, at the time, we kind of saw that, you know, the case, the law cases were leaning towards personal use for music locker, provided users upload this music themselves as proof that they own this music. And since fractional storage was not a problem in terms of personal use, so we were encouraged to develop a music locker application. And so that's what we did. So we developed Brio over the years during those periods when we were not working actively for our customer. So Brio was our kind of like project. So, so it took us like four years, you know, to build Brio to what it is today. And you know? also today Brio accepts any high-res format. It could be DXD, DSD, surround, MQA even, in spite of all the controversies, MQA as well. Of course, PCM, FLAC, ALAC all of your high-res formats. Now, for all those formats that are not non-PCN-based, we keep them in their original native condition so that our real customers can download them back at any time they require to do so. And because of fractional storage, we kind of felt that we see that in our customers, a lot of them are Neil Archives, Neil's supporters or Neil's fans. And so every time Neil has an album, they, they, they purchase it, they upload it into our system and we find that maybe 30 Real users are uploading the same album. So we don't store 30 albums, we just store one. And then we said that, you know, since fractional storage is, is, is working because it is the service that it appeals to a common class of consumers, all with high-res music, and most of them share very similar music tastes. So we said to basically open Brio with unlimited storage. You know, you can upload as much as you, you like. So we have customers who have six terabytes of music. So they're using it kind of like a cloud uh, archive service as well. We, we think that's a good thing because we don't have to call. <laughs> because of rational storage, I think we can afford that. And so it, Brio is essentially your direct-to-consumer offering right now? Yes, it is. Yeah, it is our uh, direct consumer offering, which is basically targeted at music aficionados and people who who, who say, "Hey, I, I want to assess my own personal music on a mobile device, you know, anywhere I go." So, so that's kind of targeted at them. And and for Brio, we've also developed a desktop app, which is a free license, you know, because the desktop is capable of playing C on on PCM, capable of playing all the high res files, AC. Uh, MP3, of course, and it has it has audio file features like auto sample rate matching, exclusive mode, gapless playback, and stuff like that. So we we kind of just want to put this desktop player with consumers who don't have to pay a license, you know, for a higher specification audio file grade desktop player. So if you just want a, a player to play high res music and and have all the common high res features then you can use our desktop players as a free license. This is kind of part of what we want to do to get consumers educated on experiencing high-quality music, high, better-sounding quality music. So in, in our desktop player, we take this UMA, use universal modern media access concept in as well. So for instance, we have endpoints that you can connect to, say, Blue Sound. You can connect to uh, Chromecast. 
You can connect to UPnP uh, supported speakers. You can connect to Sonos speakers. But of course, in your local file or in your cloud file, you may have a 192 audio file and you're playing a 192. Now, if you try to play 192 on Chromecast, you probably don't play because Chromecast supports only 96. You try to play on Sonos, it also won't play because it supports only 2448. You play on Blue OS, Blue Sound, it plays because Sonos, uh, Blue Sound is the only, so far, I think one of the, one of the few home, in-home connected systems that support 2492. Now, in those other endpoints where it don't support 2492, Brio basically, when it does a handshake, it knows that, oh, this is Chromecast. It only goes 24196. So Brio takes the 2492 down, sounds like and let the 2496 be delivered to Chromecast so that it plays. So for the Brio user, it's trans- totally transparent to him. So long as he, he select the player device, he select the, the source, he press play, it creates an end-to-end pipe that allows the audio to be played on that particular device. So that's what we call a universal multimedia access delivery paradigm. So basically, that's what the Brio application is. So although it looks just like a normal player, there is kind of... There's a lot going on. <laughs> there's a lot of going on in there, yeah. Now, and of course, all of these are developed by... And you know, mind you, we are a small company and Kevin just manages all of this. There's just a lot of innovation going around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's very exciting. I think we're, we're just very fortunate to meet up with uh, different partners over the years. And even uh, some of these are basically the customers of our partners. And they provided a lot of valuable feedback. But the reason why we say Brio was our kind of laboratory, a place where we test new things is because, you know, there were all these questions and requests that came from partners and users. And the only reasonable place to experiment with new features would not be on our customers themselves. But we would like to bring it to a place where you can try new things. We don't need to be critically reviewed at that point in time, you know, when Real was still starting out as a new platform. So basically, we were quite fortunate to be able to get a lot of inputs, a lot of feedback, a lot of, a lot of questions going on. Uh, eventually, we derived a set of FAQs that help us uh, navigate through you know, what to expect from Real or not. But basically, that helps us to kind of establish the foundation of what Brio was back then. And I, I think this, this is still true today. You know, we use a UMA concept to say, okay, Brio is like that universal adapter that matches whatever sources to whatever destinations that is at home or even outside of the home. Okay. And I think this allows us to then build the next round of products and features directly to our customers. Like HD Tracks would want a better download manager. And so we we would sometimes bring ideas that would develop on Brio to our partners. And then basically they would think, hey, this is, you know, this is great. It will work better for my customers. And in other situations, the reverse would be true. They would take the initiative to build those features. And we felt that, you know, these are really good features that can be used by our common pool of customers. I wanted Kelvin to sort of uh, speak a little bit more about what we're doing with high-res stream, audio streaming in video, given that, you know, Kelvin told you about, you know, disparity between the focus yeah, on please. visual and audio. Kelvin, maybe you can, you can talk about what, we've, what you've done for live streaming, what you've done for record videos, what our customers have done with what we've developed. Yeah, I, I think the live streaming part basically was 
was something that we started on, I think, six to nine months ago. So we started exploring what are the, some of the options in which we could use for bringing higher quality audio into first a recorded stream and now uh, a live stream, right? But in the underlying protocol to deliver uh, such media, it's still HLS. And by HLS, I would also bring in MPEG Dash, right? These two, basically, the, the, the two contemporary protocols that are used for delivering both audio and video. So basically, looking at the audio quality, continue on where I left off on that white disparity, and it, it's still widening, right? We would want to be able to look at what is in the MPEG or HLS standards. Okay? And I think one thing that was that came up like in the recent uh, years was the ability to stream lossless by including a flag or an Apple lossless segment okay, into the stack of codecs that are supported within HLS and Dash. So we think, okay, maybe instead of using ALAC or flag, we could basically swap these two out and then put in an SLS codec and have our players handle the receiving and decoding of such data. So for other uh, legacy players, you know, existing players that are out on production, they could just go with what they understood with the other underlying codecs, AAC codecs, basically, AAC and Opus. They could still continue to use that. So for us to do that, we basically started off with our web player, right? We integrated our AuraStream web player to work alongside with the HLS player. It worked quite well. They were delivered as two separate streams, video and audio. And once video is playing, right, we don't want any interruption to the video. So somehow we have to be able to do a synchronization, deliver the audio alongside with the video. And at some point of time, when the two streams match up, we would then be able to kind of like sync in. Synchronize. Lock them. Yeah. yeah. On the two media and have that SLS quality switch on after that. So this was basically the objective that we were just thinking of. You know, if we could demonstrate that, then that opens up a lot of opportunities. I think back then we were just going into a, a pandemic situation there. <laughs> and then that gives us a lot of time to really understand uh, how to do this better. And at the same time, you know, a lot of performing artists, they were impacted by the loss of income because public performances in, in live venues getting lesser. So they were looking at live streaming through YouTube and Facebook as avenues in which they could reach out to existing fans. And in the process, they realized that they are actually building a fan base. You know, it's not just the existing fans, but fans will inform friends and family. And, and most of these are basically also true, like fans discovering uh, new artists in the platform itself. So I think coming back to what we developed on the live streaming part, then we realized that this is part of a, a trend that was developing around the world. Okay, but not so much on audio quality. And that's where I think we, we, we think that we are going to be able to address a niche market in this space here by offering better audio quality in the form of a live stream concert, some kind of an event that you would basically usually would stage in a physical venue. But instead of being confined to a 40,000-seater space, you could basically be streaming that event outside to 40 million fans worldwide. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So basically, the idea of having 
no constraints with the numbers or the seats that are within that show or within a, a, an event itself, we would then be able to get them to really be immersed within the concert, right? With better audio quality and with, with better uh, a way of delivering both the audio and video over, right? I think the situation with a lot of artists today is that they have been doing this on uh, Facebook and YouTube Live. So they were stuck with this situation where fans are so used to having this as a free uh, concert. It's a free performance. You know, how do I even monetize it? But basically what we've done is to, uh, to bring higher quality audio into video. So on, on the Neil, for Neil Young, for instance, all his, his new album, Ban, all the tracks, he actually has two sets of videos. One is available on YouTube, you know, in, in AC quality or MP3 quality. The other set of videos are available on his website, the Neon Archives, for his subscribers. Now, all those videos that, that he has streaming in 24-1 ISU audio quality, uh, he's kind of used this as part of Neil Young's archives, this artist-specific fan site. You know? And here he uses technology to enable his artists to get videos in high-resolution audio, something that they can't get elsewhere. If they go to YouTube, you get them in MP3. Gets to control you know? the presentation of his art. Exactly, control his presentation. And we brought the same to, to live stream as well. So earlier, earlier this year, we basically live stream a concert, a chamber orchestra concert. It was a physical concert that was in a hall that sat around maybe about 120 people. And the chamber orchestra got a live stream out to one of the tel- teleco- telecom companies in Singapore as a sponsor uh, to sponsor the live stream to some of their enterprise customers. So in a certain way, you know, it, it overcomes the limits of the seating capacity and, and because of social distancing, you know, the capacity was further reduced. And it affords them additional revenue stream by way of a sponsorship with a corporate partner. So this live stream was transmitted or delivered or broadcast in live stream in 2448 audio quality. And we had invited some of our customers to view it. And one of them was David Chesky. And he said that this concert was fantastic. He didn't know that the, he, he just felt that the musicians were so talented, you know, here in Singapore. He, he said that he wanted to come in Singapore and play it as well. But I think, I think part of that, part of that had come from the, the audio perception and of the quality of the performance because you, you're listening this in, in actually 2448 uh, resolution as opposed to what you're normally used to listening in MP3 quality. So I, I think that, that the sound quality has had a part informing his positive uh, emotive experience uh, that he expressed after the show. Yeah, that's incredible. So, so we, we, we think that it's, it could, this could be something that where we were looking to find, of course, more use applications and more platforms to put this on. Yeah. Well, I wish you the best with that. And I thank you both for making so much time to um, come give us some context as to the state of the technology and where you're taking it. I look forward to seeing the platform deployed more globally and in more services. And it's very exciting to have great audio to look forward to as you guys expand your business. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity of, of having us speak here as well. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Frank and Calvin. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Frankie Tan and Kelvin Lee. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, 
and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. If you like what we're up to here, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Join us again next week. And in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Bye, baby.